Everybody, how are we doing this morning? Today was one of those mornings when you woke up and you looked outside and you just said, no, I'm going to stay right where I'm at. It's one of those mornings that's kind of dark and cloudy and rainy and cold, which is amazing. We don't get many of them in Texas. So if you're in the room, God loves you. If you're watching online, he loves you just as much, I'm pretty sure. And if you're watching later on, we're glad you joined us today. So we're going to start this morning like we do every morning before we teach. And it's about us coming to this place and acknowledging that God brought us here in whatever format we are here and saying that we expect God to show up this morning. We expect God to teach us. And so to do that, we want to make sure that we come to this place, open the scripture and and understand that we live in a critical culture, but we want to contribute to the conversation of faith this morning. And so we start by praying. We start by asking the Lord to prepare our hearts because today is about preparation. We ask that God might do something. So we're going to pray and I'm going to ask that you take some time wherever you're at this morning, and, and, and pray that the Holy Spirit might speak with you and to you here and now. And then I'll ask you to pray for me, um, that God uses the preparation to show us more of who he is and why he's good. So pray with me. God, I'm so thankful that we can be here today. I'm so thankful that we can show up and open your scriptures and remember in the middle of, of just the craziness of this year, the consistency of our God. As we, as we dive into Mark chapter 1, Holy Spirit, I pray that you guide our conversation. I pray that you supernaturally, you speak to our spirit and reveal more of your character and your goodness as we tackle a story that might be new or might not even be close to new uh, as as we open your word. I pray that you use this time to make us better followers of Jesus. If you're comfortable, just take a couple seconds and say a prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit this morning. And then I ask that you pray for me, that God might use the preparation to just reveal more of his goodness. We'll pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today, 1 through 8. But you just got to know, if you don't know this about me yet, I'm a very much bottom line upfront guy. This week, I downloaded a new app on my phone. It's called Headway. And the point of this whole app is it takes entire books and it asks you how long you have each day to read. And you can choose from five minutes to 15 minutes to 20 minutes. And it's supposed to, I haven't started yet, it's supposed to condense entire books into 15-minute reads, the things that really matter. I'm the kind of guy, when I'm reading a book, and especially Christian books do this, they put in a lot of stories about them and their families, I just skip that completely because it's of no value to me, and I tell you stories every week of my family, I hope you listen, you know? I get the irony. I'm a bottom line, upfront kind of guy, and it's, it's come out in different ways. So, for example, let me tell you about this week. I'm driving my kiddo, my pickup every day from daycare or from one of our parents, and we drive back home to Dallas, and there is a light on the way. <clears throat> if you live off this street, I'm so sorry. It is $24.99 in Aberdeen, okay? Let me tell you about this street. $24.99 is a major street. There are six or seven lanes. Lots of people are on the street. Aberdeen is an afterthought of a road with some houses, and Aberdeen has a light. So I'm sitting at this light this week, and I didn't catch it, and it's red, and I thought, cool, this will be a a solid 10-second light, and I'll move on with my life, because I'm on the main street, and I look over, you guys know now that they have counters to when you're going to get a green light again, and you can look left to see it, do do you know how many seconds were on this afterthought of a light? 
55. 55 seconds. And I start like yelling out loud, what are we waiting for? Nobody's here. And I thought about, I can just go. God's fine with it. Like it's, it's not a big deal. Safety first. And so then we're driving farther and we always FaceTime my wife, my daughter's mother, when we get close to the house. And she picks up the phone and she looks at my wife and my daughter goes, dad's frustrated all the time. <laughs> And I said, I'm sorry now. And she said, that's frustrating because people aren't going. And she has so many more words. I'm a bottom line, upfront guy. I do not like to wait, especially if I don't understand the purpose of waiting. And that's where the tension hits us this morning because here's the deal, man. We are celebrating an Advent season where there's a lot of waiting. We're celebrating an Advent season where waiting is kind of the point and purpose of why we gather to look forward to the coming expectancy of the Savior. This year, we're not going to have it, but in years past, we've had a, an 11 o'clock service, and it's a COVID casualty, but we'll bring it back. And, and, and what my favorite thing about that service, so many, but one of them, was we tell people it starts at 11, and on purpose, on purpose, we don't start that. We all gather outside and walk in together, and, 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 and we, we start on purpose around 11.10, and from 11 to 11.10, so many people look at me like, I can't read a watch. Like, Charlie, can we, no, we can't go in quite yet. Hey, can we start now? We're not going to start quite yet. And here's the irony. The purpose of that service is the waiting. And then when we have to wait, people get really frustrated, right? Like me at the light at Aberdeen. We have a hard time waiting when we don't see the purpose. But, but, but so often, when we, especially when we read the Christmas story, we see these rhythms of waiting that we come into. But it's not just about Christmas, and it's not just about streetlights, and it's not just about 11 o'clock services. It, it's all the way through our theology of how we think and feel about God in this world. Like one of the hardest questions we deal with is the theodicy question, right? If, if God is all good, God hates all things that aren't all good, and God is all powerful, why doesn't he fix everything right now? Like, what's this waiting period in the middle? We don't, I don't like waiting. So we're in Mark chapter one this morning. And you gotta understand that, that the book of Mark is a book that doesn't like waiting either. He starts his gospel by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God. When we talk about how Mark introduces Jesus, you have to understand that his whole gospel is one of movement. And, and that's our series this Advent season is the way that the different writers introduce us to Jesus shows us characteristics of Jesus that we should see. So last week we looked at Matthew and we looked at a riveting 15 or 16 verses on genealogy. And everybody says, Charlie, can we do that some more? No, they didn't. But we looked at it and it was really good because Matthew values the legacy of faithfulness of God who's always has been there and always will be there. Will be there. Mark does something a little different. He starts right in by saying, hey, this is who Jesus is, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before we go any farther, let's look at who Mark is, because some of us might know, some of us might not. Mark's gospel was written by a guy named John Mark. But for all intents and purposes, he was a disciple of Peter, the disciple of Jesus. And so most scholars agree that the gospel of Mark is the account of Peter. It's, it's his stories from his firsthand knowledge when he talked to Mark about, let me tell you this time about Jesus when we were in a boat and I saw Jesus walking on the water and I could not wait any longer. So I ran out on the water with him. One writer said that the gospel of Mark is the gospel for busy people 
Because when you read through it, there's always action. There's words like next and immediately and right after all the time. He doesn't waste time in his gospel. He doesn't waste time when he starts. He gets right in and said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. He leaps right into the action because that's who Peter was. Bottom line up front. There's that example. There's the example a little later on when Peter is in the garden with Jesus before he goes to the cross. You know what I'm talking about? And they try to come up on Jesus and he gets really frustrated and he wants to act and he wants to act now. So what does he do? He takes his sword off and goes all Van Gogh and one of the guards, right? They came to arrest Jesus, cuts off his ear. Or in one of kind of the pivotal moments of this gospel, because what Mark does is the first eight chapters kind of talk about who Jesus is and then the last eight talk about how he is who he is, how he's going to get there. So he's, he's revealing this Messiah King and he said, this is how it's going to happen. And it's pivotal in the last half of chapter eight because it's the first time Jesus asks, who am I? And Peter says, you're the son of God. And Jesus is like, yes. And then right after that, he says, guess what? I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter says, don't say those things. That's not going to happen. So right after this huge admission of faith, Peter jumps off the boat again, if you will, metaphorically. And he says, don't talk about things like that. And Jesus rebukes him, right? So you have this bottom line up front, no space or place for nuance. Let's get there. Let's get there now kind of narrative. And that's how he starts. In the beginning was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So he starts with this idea of gospel, and that, that has some different meaning that probably we give it meaning to, and I don't know what you think of when you think of gospel, but oftentimes in our section of followers of Jesus, the word gospel means kind of a phrase or a word or a pamphlet or a prayer or a Roman's road or a preacher. That's what gospel means. But in the first century world, that word existed already and meant something different. And what Peter's going to do, what Mark's going to do is say, let me tell you about what the gospel really is. It means good news. And they used it in a couple different ways. In, in a Roman context, they used gospel to talk about Caesar, their emperor. And they used gospel literally when it was either the king's birthday, when he got something passed, or when there was a new king that came to power. You would send out these messages of good news or joyful tidings to everybody because your fearless leader, who in some level a little later on became deity when they talked about the emperors, your fearless leader had something good for you. It was gospels. In the Greco world, in the Greek world, it actually referenced, and in the Old Testament, it referenced military victories. We see it in the Old Testament when the Philistines beat Saul. They sent out messengers with gospel to tell of the good news of their victory. So what we see when we look at this word gospel in the context of the first century world is it's not just a proclaimed message. It's a real truth of regime or, re or reign or rule. It's your Lord. It's your Caesar. It's your military victory. So when Peter uses the word gospel, when Peter uses the word, when Mark uses the word, what he means is more than just, here's a message of good news. Here's a reality of a new rule that we have. Actually, it's really interesting. In the first century world, gospel was plural. In the New Testament, it's only singular, referring to the life and work of Jesus. It's so much bigger than just a message. It is a way of life because we have a new king. That's gospel. And so he starts his gospel by saying, the beginning of the gospel, this new way of life because we have a new reign and ruler. And then he said of Jesus Christ, not just the message of salvation, but the way that message is lived out that brings hope for tomorrow. He said, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love it. He starts with the bottom line up front. 
Some commentators would say this is the title of his gospel. And so I would expect him right here, right now, to dive into Jesus, because that's what he does. So let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse two, as it's written in the prophet Isaiah, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare a way for you or your way. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. There's a pivot there. We go from this bottom line up front, let's dive in the deep end, let's leap without looking kind of guy to let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus, but let me start with this prophet in Isaiah. This is the only time that he actually quotes the Old Testament in his entire gospel. Matthew does it a ton. So he starts by saying, let me tell you about Jesus, but before I tell you about Jesus, let me quote the scroll. And let me tell you about this other guy first. He pivots from what we think would happen, which is action, to this idea of, but first there's something that happens before Jesus. And I know that Peter, that Mark, wants to get to Jesus. And a couple reasons why he does that. Just like last week we talked about, there's a theological reason. One, this happened so that scripture could be fulfilled. So that people knew that Jesus' coming wasn't just an accident. But he fulfilled all of these scriptures that made it incredibly impossible for coincidence to take place. He showed up in a certain way at a certain time that was talked about for centuries and centuries and centuries so that God could say, I planned this and there is no other way to talk about Jesus. It proves that he is the Messiah. But more than that, what he's saying in this text, he says, let me tell you about Jesus. But before I tell you about Jesus, I need to tell you about this guy that's going to come and prepare the way for Jesus. What we get at the beginning of Mark, is his way of saying, you know what, there, there, there's work to be done before you meet Jesus. This idea that what you prepare for, you care for. So he introduces us to this idea that I'm going to prepare the way for this God that I love. And, and we knew that John the Baptist is going to get to love the Lord because it says a couple verses down that one more is going to come that's powerful than me. I'm not worthy to bend down to untie the strap of his sandals, which was only a job that Gentile slaves could do, not even Jewish slaves. So what he's doing, he's saying, my role, my job is to prepare a way for Jesus because what you prepare for, you care for. And when you think about it, it's a pretty simple truth, but one that kind of hits hard in all the aspects of things that you value in life. I remember before the birth of our daughter a couple years ago, we decided it'd be a good idea to go to all these classes at the hospital. So we took so many classes that my favorite, it wasn't my favorite, one of them was a childcare 101. And it was like, yeah, let's go, let's do it. And we spent the first hour of this eight hour class learning how to pass off babies, right? So I say like I'm a shortstop in a baseball game and it's a pop fly to the middle infield. I got it, you take it, right? And these people are taking this super seriously and I'm palming the head of this doll, handing it to my wife, you know? And they're looking at me like, if you're not gonna take it seriously, why are you here, right? But then we went to class after class after class. Do you know why I went to all those? Because my wife said I had to. <laughs> That's because what you prepare for, you care for. And so he's saying, before we meet Jesus, there's preparation that needs to be done so that we can meet Jesus in the right way. And here's what I love about that. It's a little bit of a tangent, but a good one. What you prepare for, you care for. That's exactly what we see when God relates to us. It's exactly what we see. God prepared for you a way. God formed you before you were born. God meets you right here, right now. That's why we pray for it at the beginning of every Sunday morning. Even right now while we're sitting here, the scripture says that he's preparing a place for us so that we can live with him one day for all the days. What you prepare for, you care for. God is preparing for you. It's a beautiful truth. And so Mark introduces us to Jesus and he says, before you meet Jesus, 
let's talk about the value of preparation. So then he introduces us to John. The next verse, he says, In the wilderness, John the baptizer began preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You know, I think it's always interesting to talk about how we read Scripture. Because how we read Scripture oftentimes determines what we get out of Scripture. If I'm going to read a whole book in 15 minutes, that's going to be different than if I read the whole book in a couple hours. And we read, we read the Scriptures like it's a Marvel movie, you know? Because we read the scriptures and we think that it's just action after action after action. We think that God called Moses and Moses set his people free. We think God called David and he became the king. We think God called Paul or Saul and he all of a sudden started teaching. What we miss are those middle places of the wilderness. The wilderness is a theme in the Old and New Testament of a place where God prepares his people. Because in each one of those stories, they took time to prepare. Moses sat in the wilderness for 40 years before God called him. David took 10 years from his call to when he actually became king. Paul spent 10 years building tents, getting ready so that he might be able to do the work of the Lord. We read it like it's an action novel when really what he's saying is preparation is part of following Jesus. Even where we're at in the story now, there's been 400 years since God last spoke to when he's speaking this time. The idea of wilderness is, is a place. It's a place where God prepares us. So, so how that translates to us is so often we think that if God doesn't work right here and right now, right in the ways that I want, that he's not working. And I just would push back and say, that's not the God I see in the scriptures. It's, it's the idea that we got to push past the instant into the value of the incremental that over day and time and year, God is shaping and forming us. What that does is it gives us grace to live a life that's formed over time. What that does is it helps us not doubt a God who doesn't show up right where I want him, when I want him. It gives us the ability to keep trusting. And what we have to see are those moments when we wait. Those moments when we move beyond just waiting to preparing. Those moments when we're actively pressing towards or expecting God to show up. What we have to see is those moments aren't a curse, they're a blessing. They're not a punishment, they're a grace. So often I see it the other way around, you know? I had a conversation this week with a friend of mine, and I thought it was really interesting. One of my favorite just things to think about in being a parent is how you grow with your kid. So I was talking to, I think she's a grandmother, I forget, and she said, you know, I can't hold this kid anymore because they're too old for me. And I said, you know, the beauty about like having a kid is when you first have a kid and they are all of like seven pounds, you don't really feel the weight. But as you grow with your kid, and now my daughter's 27 pounds, I can continue to hold her because my arm has gotten stronger with her as I've held her over the years, right? It's the idea that God has prepared me to hold the toddler because I had a one-year-old and a one-month-old before then, that God grows us in those times of waiting. It's the same idea that I needed a kid that came out of the hospital sleeping all the time. Because if I would have left the hospital with a two and a half year old who thought that I was trying to ruin her life by putting a sweater on her, I would have said, I don't want another one. Let's try this again, right? That's why we don't start with teenagers. <laughs> because we need to build our love for them over time, everybody. Waiting is not a curse, it's a grace. It's the place where God prepares us for what he's going to do. And so what he says, what Mark says when he introduces Jesus is, let me tell you about John, the guy that's going to prepare the way for Jesus because don't undervalue the value in preparation. And so then he talks about John. He said, John wore a garment made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist 
and he ate locusts and wild honey. It begs the question, so if he, if he cements this idea that preparation is of value, then who you send to prepare for you is valuable as well. So who I choose to send before me sends a value of what I want them or how I want them to prepare, right? So for example, think about a wedding. You send an adorable toddler or some kind of animal or some really beautiful thing in front of the bride to say the bride is coming. Nobody sends like, you know, kind of Timsey Aunt Sally down the aisle to be like, look who's coming behind me, you know? Because what you want is a transfer, all this adorableness of this toddler that's kind of drunkenly walking because they're toddlers and saying, look what's coming behind me. Get ready for the bride. It's the same thing. My question to you is, why, why does God send John the Baptist? This guy that's out in the wilderness eating honey and, you know, and locusts. He gets a bad rap a little bit. That, that is actually what most prophets wore and what they ate. So he's not just like outdoor, hippie, loving kind of vegan. You know, he's, he is pretty quintessential par for the road of the prophetic in the Old and New Testaments. And so he says, I'm going to send to you a baptizer. And then he continues in the text. It says, people from the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem were going out to him. And he was baptizing them in the Jordan River. So, so God decides to prepare his people by sending somebody to baptize. And I want to ask why. Why, of all people, does he send somebody that's going to baptize? You have to understand what baptism was. So, so again, just like with the idea of the term gospel, God didn't invent that term just for Jesus. He took a term they knew and said, let me show you how this points to better eternal things. Same thing with baptism. Baptism, the concept and construct of it, wasn't started with John the Baptist. That's not where it gets its name. It existed far before John ever came onto the scene. Because in the first century world, they were really scared of water because water was really scary. Because they didn't understand how to predict it because oftentimes it killed people. Water was scary and it symbolized death. And so, for example, in the first century, and even before that, if you were not a Jew and you wanted to become a Jew, you would go through a ritual washing or a baptism. They would take you and they would dunk you in some water and they would say you were a Samaritan or you were a Philistine, but the symbolism as you go underwater that represents death, now you are no longer that, you are becoming something else. It symbolized death to something. And so John says to his people, here's what preparation looks like, repent. Repent because Jesus is coming. And the nature of his preparedness was repentance. And I know we don't talk about repentance a lot in the church, it feels like anymore, but Repentance is a deep-seated desire to change because you know the cost of your ways and you know it's wrong. I was talking to Delin this week who did the liturgy and, and Tim Keller actually has a, a really good uh, teaching on repentance and he talks about the difference between repenting and remorse. You know, those two different things. And I don't know if you know this about Delin, but, but her favorite food is disgusting. You got you to gear up for this. Her favorite food is the cheese from 7-Eleven, which you put on your nachos where you push the button and it dispenses. <laughs> Pretty sure it glows in the dark too. So that is her favorite thing. And she was talking this week to me and she said, you know, um, the difference between repentance and remorse is every time I eat that cheese, I feel remorseful, but I keep going back, <laughs> you know? There's a difference between I ate raising canes and I know I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to do it again in a week. And this deep-seated desire to what repentance gets to change at any and all costs because I understand the cost of what's happening here. Tim Keller would go on and, and talk about that the difference between remorse and repentance is when you're remorseful, you feel bad about where, what your sin has cost you. When you're repentant, you feel bad about what your sin has cost God. 
What's the difference? And so John comes. He says, let me tell you about this construct that I already have, that you already know, that you're going to die to something because you know it's not the best thing. That's what you have to do before you meet Jesus. You have to understand that, that part of who we are needs changing, that sin is a problem that we all have, that we all are causes for the injustice in our world right now, all of us. That's why it said all Judeans came from all over the countryside. He made a case that said it's not just for few, it's for all. And so Jesus prepares the way. God prepares the way for Jesus by sending a baptizer first and foremost to tell people that they need to change, not just because it's hurting them, but because it's hurting the one who created all of us. So this idea of repentance is at the core, it's at the heart of what it means to prepare the way for Jesus. Another thing about repentance was it wasn't simply about a one-time decision to change. It's an ongoing conversation because baptism in the first century world wasn't just a one-time thing. It also had this idea or this tangential thought of cleanliness that happened often. So these ritual watchings that you would do, You'd do them if you decided to become a Jew for the first time, or you'd get ritually cleansed if there was some sin in the camp, or if you were sick, or one of my favorites is you had prophets, and you had priests, and you had Sadducees, and you had Pharisees, and you had this group called scribes, and their whole job in the first century world was just to copy the manuscripts of the scriptures from the prophets, and from Genesis, and Exodus, and Leviticus, and every time they would have to write God's proper name, which in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Every time they would have to write that name, first of all, they didn't write the vowels out of respect. Every time they wrote that name, they took a bath so they could write it with a clean heart. And so if, if you had a scripture passage that had the word Yahweh four or five times in a chapter, you went home feeling squeaky fresh, you know? Because with this idea of ritual washing or baptism came this idea of cleanliness. Like, I'm going to approach our God with a clean and unadulterated heart because I understand the gap between him and me. John prepares the way of Jesus by saying, know who you are and know who God is. Repent and be clean. But then finally, this idea of repentance wasn't just about, I think, I think this is kind of sometimes what we miss in the first century, from the first century to now when we talk gospel. It's the difference between a gospel of shame and a gospel of grace or a gospel of death and a gospel of life. The whole reason why you did that in the first place was so that there was space for new. So, so you, you tuck people down on the water because that symbolized their death to something. And then what I say to people when I baptize them here, when all the sin bubbles stop, I'll pull you right up, you know? Because what we're doing when we talk about baptism is not just you're going to put something to death because we have things that deserve to die. What, what we do when we talk about baptism is say, we need to put things to death so that God can live in me. And so when we talk about preparation, what we're really talking about, one, is there's value in preparation, and two, when we don't just wait, when we prepare as people that follow Jesus, we make room fundamentally for what God is going to do next. That's the value of preparation. And you could say, well, I'm good, I have prepared, I don't need it, but I will ask you to read verse 13 on your own time, right down in this chapter. You know what Jesus does after, or when he first hits the scene in Mark? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and prepares for the ministry he's about to do for three years. If Jesus needed preparation, so do you. It's the idea that God values preparedness because in those moments he's making something of us and he's going to use us. And when we prepare, we make room for what God is going to do next. I think when Mark's talking about meeting Jesus for the first time, he talks about preparedness because I think he sees it as a value for the people of God. Don't forget that Jesus is coming 
But before we meet him, we have some work to do so that we're ready. One of my favorite things about this text is the beginning of it. And so you've got to ask the question, why a baptizer? Well, I think it's, it's about us saying we need to make space for God to know us and to grow us. We need to make space for repentance and for preparedness. We need to make space, but also the overall message that he's sending. Look how it starts in verse 1. At the very beginning of this book, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are three books in your Bibles that start with the words beginning. Genesis, Mark, and John. All three of those, I think, are calling us into this new movement that Jesus is starting. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, is John, that's next week. But I think what Mark's doing is calling us back to God is here to recreate and reinvent just like he did in Genesis 1. We have this garden, mode, we have this garden kind of language coming throughout because what he's saying is repent so that God can build new in you what you were supposed to be in the very beginning. Repent so that Jesus can form you. Repent so that you might make space for God to grow you. Prepare. Don't just be a people that wait, be a people that prepare for what God is going to do. It's this beautiful call into the work that we need to do so that we might fully see God working here and now. One writer, I loved it, he said, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous in the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. And sometimes, I, all the time, I don't like waiting. I don't see the value in waiting. But that's because I don't see the value in preparing. <laughs> and I think what Mark's doing here is telling us that, hey, as a people of God, we prepare for what God's going to do. And so this Advent season is all about looking forward to something. It's all about looking forward to Christmas and to telling stories and to doing the family traditions. But really, it's deeper than that. He's saying, prepare for what God's going to do in and through you. And, and so for some of us, that just might mean that we need to take a good, long, hard look and ask where God is trying to change us so that he can have more influence in our life. That's repentance. Maybe it's me saying, I need to not get so frustrated when I drive and value those times with my daughter when she's singing the Ants Go Marching for the 17th time. We haven't left Flower Mound yet, you know? Maybe it's simply that we need to change our attitude and see waiting as a, a grounds for preparation, <laughs> that God is doing something, and when we prepare, we more aptly see it. Changing our mindset toward those wilderness moments are important because that's where God uses those places and spaces in our life to grow us incrementally as we follow Jesus and his influence abounds. And then finally, I think this text is laden with expectation. We prepare so that our expectations can grow. We prepare so that we understand and know that God is good and he is working and he is building something in us as we make space for what God is going to do next. So I think he's charging us in this Advent seasons before we meet Jesus, understand that he wants to do something. So we prepare for it. And whatever that looks like, in whatever space that we find ourselves so that we can fully see and appreciate what God's doing right here and right now and what he will and want to do. So the question this morning is simply, like I said, it's a simple one. How are we not just waiting for the Advent season? How are we preparing for what God's going to do this Advent season? What does it look like? And then finally, I love the idea of this text because I think it, it, it speaks to where we are now as a people. So, so we're in this middle time. Like we celebrate Jesus coming a couple thousand years ago, but we wait for him to come again. 
We're in this middle time of people that need to hear the message of Jesus. We're in this middle time of already but not yet, meaning God already came and gave us hope, but he's going to come again. We're in this middle time of waiting. And I think there's beauty in that because, let's go back to the theodicy question from the beginning. Why doesn't God just act now and rid the world of all injustices? Because if he's going to do that, he'd probably have to start with me. <laughs> and every day that I get time and space to prepare, every day that I get time and space, what he's doing is he's saving people, he's showing grace, and he's saying, I'm giving time for people to see me that wouldn't normally see me. He's asking us as a people to prepare for him so that others might see him. So these words to John from Isaiah, when it says, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice and the one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path right. I don't think that's just the call for John. I think it's the charge to his church. In this middle ground of Jesus already coming, but going to come back, we right now get to be the people that cry in the wilderness and say, God is coming. What are we doing to get ready? God is coming and he's good. Let's make way, let's make room for God so that we might see what he's doing in our families and in our communities and in our churches because God is here, God is, is for us, and God wants to do a work in and through us. And as we prepare, we make room for that work that he's going to do. Let me pray.